Yeah. This has infected my imagination. So now. your cat's just finished his uh, caviar hors d'oeuvres and he's sitting down at a wine bar and he's about to enjoy the licking he's about to get. Yeah, basically. Okay. And then, you know, he goes around to the bathroom and there's a shady character there and he goes, man, you got any cat in Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Tech podcast. We're your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Good morning. Good morning. And today on the Pleasure of the Tech, we are going to be doing uh, some feedback, aren't we, Gareth, from the piece that we developed last week? Yes, that's right. Workshop feedback. Uh, we'll probably do uh, a whole bunch of these sessions uh, um, over the coming weeks and months and years, decades yeah. that we run this podcast. And why do you think it's so important that we do this? Um, yeah, so basically there are things that you can learn in, in writing classes and they can be extremely useful. Um, but probably the most important thing you can learn is how to give and receive feedback um, because you will find that different readers have unique perspectives and that will illuminate things about your work that you wouldn't necessarily be able to fish out for yourself. So, yeah, it's basically the the spine of being a, a writer, a functional writer in the world, is to have a group that you can get feedback from and to whom you can give feedback uh, that you can rely upon. Um, now, friends and family don't cut it. Yeah. Do they, Shannon? They're, they're lovely people, aren't they? But they're not, they're not feedback people um, because you have a complicated pre-existing relationship. Mm. And I remember reading about the Masters of Creative Writing at Iowa and one of the things that the student said was the most valuable thing, so not even having lecturers that are published authors or editors working with them, it was the workshopping uh, experience that they had in that little room every week, getting to sit down with other people and getting that feedback on their work. So workshopping is really important. It is, and it's not just getting the feedback. Um, that's also very helpful. But I personally think the thing that will aid you the most as a writer is to learn to give feedback, um, which is not a simple thing to do because you have to negotiate uh, the difficult path through being polite and encouraging and being constructively critical. Uh, a lot of people struggle with this at first. And typically what emerging workshoppers will do is give the writer a great deal of positive reinforcement, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not tremendously useful in the sense that although positive feedback can be useful if it's uh, delivered critically, as in, as in critical thinking skills have been applied in the delivery of the positive feedback. But typically what people do is they say, I loved it, this line was great, et cetera, et cetera. And as someone who's going to rework their writing, there is nothing in that that you can take away and go, I need to think about this. Uh, so what you're doing when you give feedback is you're giving the writer tools to work with. Um, and, and your own unique perspective and a workshop, uh, reading can never be wrong. 
because you're not reading the text exclusively. You're, you're essentially defining your reading of that text. No one can tell you that is incorrect because that is your reading. Who was it that said that every reader provides a misreading? So your feedback is your misreading. Yeah, that was Harold Bloom. Very early in his career, he came up with this idea of the map of misreading. Um, and it's actually in the process of misreading that all the interesting things come out. And inevitably, even a writer's um, reading of their own work a year later will be a misreading. It will be different to what they had in mind when they wrote it. You're going to come up against this anyway if you get published. People are going to read your work. You're not going to be there to say, oh, no, 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 no. I actually meant this. Here, let me give you these textbooks. You can bone up on this subject and then you'll know what I meant. It just doesn't work that way. So it's a very important process and it's one that we're going to demonstrate uh, periodically on this podcast just to, to give people a sense of, of how you do it. Uh, and we'll do it fairly organically, I think, uh, rather than list a whole bunch of rules and do's and don'ts. We'll just kind of do our feedback today and we'll talk our way through it and the things we're thinking about as we're delivering feedback. Yeah. And you mentioned that when you're giving feedback in that workshopping experience, you're giving the writer a set of tools. What do you mean by the tools that you're going to be providing the writer to go back and work with? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it might not even be tools. It's more like materials. So, so basically, you know, you've built a scene, but it's missing the deck. And, and effectively, what the reader's giving you is all the decking materials uh, and a sense of what a deck might look like. And you may feel that the deck I'm they so have I'm so happy we're Australian and not uh, New Zealanders when you brought up the word deck. Yeah. You, you know, you'd be like, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want that kind of deck. You know, I want a pontoon. But I see now that it needed the pontoon but it also does not need a deck. And so you can weave your way through feedback in that way. It doesn't actually matter if the reader tells you something that you don't think is directly specifically useful. The fact that they have noticed something is meaningful and helpful. So, you know, a very important thing to do is take feedback. That's, mm. uh, and so... So essentially, when you take feedback, it's like taking a good licking, you know, you got to just take it. Um, I'm specifically talking about cats now. And, you know, when a cat just is licking you uh, all over the face and it smells like sardines, you just think, this is happening. I'm going to learn something from this and it's going to keep my mouth shut, right? Keep the cat tongue out of there. Keep my mouth shut, take the licking, and I'll be better for it. And that's always true. So that's something I learned from you, Shannon, not specifically in relation to cats, but or licking. when you get feedback, well, licking, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I started out with a whole American thing, you know, a good ass whooping, but then I thought it's a little archaic. So I did a quick shift to try yeah. and salvage my metaphor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you know, you just basically, you zip it. You might not want to, you might want to defend your work, um, but you don't. You just don't. You just take the feedback, you write it down. That keep, gives you something to do. And then you say, thank you very much. And if you have any specific questions, by all means, ask them, but it shouldn't be an adversarial thing. And certainly the person giving you feedback should not be treating you adversarially. They should be treating you collaboratively as though you're writing the work together. 
Yeah, it's almost as if the reader and the writer within the workshop space uh, adapts particular roles. So the reader's responsibility is to be positive while also delivering uh, constructive criticism that's going to be useful. And then the writer taking that back is to take the licking and going back also thinking, okay, I'm going to accept this, I'm going to reject this. But when in terms of the rejecting of a feedback uh, suggestion, must not come from a place of arrogance. It's has to come from a place of deep thought. I, I acknowledge what they're saying, but I don't think this is applicable to this piece of work at this moment. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, <clears throat> it was certainly applicable to their reading, and that can't be avoided. Mm. Um, but often readers will identify something that doesn't work for them. And if you have multiple readers and multiple readers all identify the same thing, they're likely to give you a whole bunch of different suggestions. And those suggestions either are a path you could take or illuminate one of the many paths you're not going to take. But whichever way it goes, you start to see the picture more clearly. Um, and just to continue our metaphor, so you take a lick and you keep on ticking. And up in the head, you use your critical thinking skills and you just keep ticking them over and allowing yourself the time to process what you've heard. So typically, if people who get feedback for the first time reject all of it. Um, you know, they're mortally wounded. And, uh, you know, that's a process most, most of us go through. And then yeah. we move to the second phase, which is taking all the feedback and creating terrible Frankensteins of writing where we've tried to please everyone. And then finally, the third stage is where we learn to take the feedback, swill it around like a fine wine, and then either swallow it, or if there's a spit bucket and that's what you want to do, spit it out. I'm just going the metaphors this morning. I'm just loving your metaphors. I'm, I'm, I'm liking just- the wine one a lot more than your cat licking sardine breath one. Oh, but the cat is the one swilling the wine with, with oh. her sardine breath tongue. So there's a whole thing happening here. I think it's because of Mr. Bibbles. Mr. Yeah. Bibbles has infected my imagination. So now. your cat's just finished his uh, caviar hors d'oeuvres and he's sitting down at a wine bar and he's about to enjoy the licking he's about to get. Yeah, basically. Okay. And then, you know, he goes around to the bathroom and there's a shady character there and he goes, man, you got any catnip? And that's uh, that's his evening sorted out. Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's what we're going to do. Um, and we're going to uh, start with. Oh, I have yes. one more um, thing that I want to raise. Um, also, going through the kind of testimonials of students that have graduated from Iowa, uh, they said that sometimes the workshop felt like I don't know if it had the word. I'm brain's not working. Mob mentality when one person would make a suggestion on feedback and then it would kind of go around the table. Whereas originally that wasn't what you were thinking when you were getting ready to give your feedback. Um, do you think there's any validity in that? Yeah, but that can be one of two things. So basically you can have thought it and then doubted yourself um, and thought, I'll just let that drop. Um, and then other times you feel that you're deferring perhaps to a superior reader. If you don't believe what you're saying, you're not giving good feedback. But sometimes other people's readings will bounce into your own. I think ultimately, you know, if that's what occurs, that's what occurs. It's up to the writer to manage that. It certainly shouldn't feel like a mob, though. And if it's a mob, 
My sense with Iowa, and I don't know if this is true, but just the way it's presented in the media and ex-students, it does feel like you're in the middle of an inquisition doing a defense of your work. I hope that isn't true because that isn't useful at all. Um, you know, art doesn't need to be defended. That's, oh. It just doesn't. Let's make a slogan um, of that on a T-shirt. We should, shouldn't we? Yeah. And then have a cat, have a cat with a glass of wine. That doesn't need to be defended. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I mean, it really doesn't. Uh, you know, trying to find validity in art, like to measure its worth, like say in economic terms, is is a really stupid thing to do. It just operates on a different level. You know, you can feel that certain art is garbage, and you can feel that certain art is garbage. And that's okay. You can walk around feeling quite okay about that. Uh, and that's how it works, you know, and you can also feel that other art has really moved you and you want to recommend it to your friends and some of them will agree. And some of them will think, well, that was total garbage, but that's kind of how art operates. It's, it's on that level of it's, it's got a more emotional element to it. Yeah. Um, and you know, emotions are extremely hard to regulate. Like who can say why we feel what we feel, but we can look at, Art also from a scientific perspective, another one altogether, and look at it, or, or from an engineering perspective, look at it as an organism or a, or a mechanism and see if it functions logically within its own system. You know, like humans, I mean, what are we doing with this appendix? If we, if we were a text, would we keep the appendix? I'd be like, look, I'm enjoying this text. It's good. It's good. I feel like that appendix is just there, you know, it doesn't need to be there. I feel like it doesn't. If you took it out, I think the text would work just as well. That's, uh, that's kind of what you're doing when you provide feedback. You're, you're creating a, an organism or a mechanism in your reading and parts will make sense and parts won't make sense. And that certainly is something that you can attack critically. Attack is probably not quite the right word, but in your own mind, attack it critically and kind of say, okay, do I agree? If not, why not? Does that illuminate something else that I've missed? And so on and so forth. Um, I don't know. Attack could be the right word. Is it, There's a saying that, you know, kill your darlings. Do you agree with that? Um, not, as a, not as a general rule. I know some people will find the favourite bits of their stories and destroy them because they think that's like the key to how you do it. It's not. Um, but if, you know, if your appendix is, is very dear to you and you love it very much, um, but it doesn't make the organism any more effective and it's something else for the reader to have to work through, then yeah, kill that particular darling appendix, be done with it out, you know, off with its head. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. And, uh, and all this critical thinking of, co- of course occurs after the first draft. I wouldn't suggest to people that they feel tremendously worried about things like what kind of organism or mechanism they're writing when they're just working through their sentences. It's, it's fine to just be instinctive. It's when you get to the second draft. And you start thinking, okay, what have I done here? Did I end it when it should have ended? Uh, did I start it where it should have started? Should the character have been male, female or some, or something else? You know, 
are there extraneous characters just floating around because I saw some guy at the cafe today and he was entertaining, so I wrote him into my story. Yeah, and is it in, like even in the right uh, century, you know, the crimson and the yeah. white. Crimson petal and the right, yeah, mm. white, yeah. Um, Faber, after laboring for so many years, suddenly realized he was in the wrong century and that made a massive difference to his text. And he couldn't have got there at the beginning. There's too many moving parts to have any sense of what that book was going to do until he saw it wound up and going in a sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so basically, you know, you don't worry about it when you're starting your first draft, you may have a mechanism in mind, but you may not. And it doesn't matter either way. But at this point, once you've done a draft, this is where you need, you know, a, a friendly Shannon to come on and have a look at your stuff and go, well, you know, okay, let's just break this down. And, and that's, uh, and that's really helpful. Um, so it's a very trusting thing. You have to really trust the person you're doing feedback with. Um, you have to trust their motives and you also have to trust their judgment. Um, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they suggest to you, but you should always consider everything they suggest to you. So having, having said all that, uh, would you like to, so, so typically we read aloud and the reason why we do that, and nobody likes doing that, I don't like doing it, but the reason why we do it is because often what you read will not be what's on the page. That happens all the time. And the other thing that occurs is as writers are reading out their work, they think, well, this doesn't sound as good as it did in my head. Uh, and so that can be very helpful. I often read things aloud and quickly put slashes in sentences. I think, eek, that's not nearly as nice as I thought it was. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's a practical reason for that. If you, you know, get published, you do a book reading, you're up there, your first ever time reading your work aloud, and it's just a big mouthful of porridge, it's going to be really embarrassing. You're going to be like, why didn't I actually do this before I did it in front of people? So that's the point of that. Yeah. And um, so, again, these are the pieces that we developed in last week's podcast, uh, Transcribing Music. So definitely head over to that and give it a listen and create your own piece and then jump back over here for the feedback segment. Uh, and this is a first draft with minor edits. Um, I should, I'll just add one more thing. Um, the edits were for cents, not, not improvements. Mm. Um, so that's just because certain bits weren't making sense. They seem like they did on the first draft and then when read through, they're like, what does this actually mean? I better add a, a joining sentence to make this make sense. So very, very light edits. These are very much first drafts. Yeah. Okay, and away we go. Ripping the spine from the fish's body, the bear dug its sharp teeth into the flaccid flesh. Siddhar squealed at the sight and pulled his hood down lower over his face, covering his wild orange hair. The gang of elk heard the odd sound from the strange shape traversing their green fields and scattered. Siddharth ran after them, attempting to re-enter the looming shadows of the mountain face, slowly receding with the rising sun. In the safety of shadow, he looked over his shoulder to see two figures following him. They were on the slopes of the mountain, while he had escaped into the deep recesses of the valley, but they were catching him. Siddharth tugged at his hair until tears sprang to his eyes. 
His grip tightened around the wooden staff he leaned heavily upon, exhausted by the climb, the pursuit, the secrets. Secrets that could change the world. The tips of his toes sported ruptured blisters where the shoe fabric had worn apart from the plastic encasing. It was difficult to determine whether the brown gunk on them was dried blood, caked over and over to form a thick layer, or mud that had done the same. But he had been in a hurry, and it had been dark, the hour 0237, when they had knocked upon the door of his family's home. Seeing their faces through the gap in the window blinds and the badges pinned to their lapels, the blood roared through his ears, eradicating all sense of self, leaving behind the bitter taste of blood in his mouth and the desire to survive. Exiting the back door, slipping on his daughter's sneakers, he left her and his wife behind without a second thought. Despite the rising sun, the face of a diminished moon graced the brightening skies. Siddharth scowled at it, wiping the sweat from his brow as he trudged on, entering into a thicket of forests and brambles. That wretched moon, he could escape it for 11 months of the year, but not 12. The Scorpio moon continued to hang in its heavenly domain, unperturbed by the struggles below. Brambles caught at his pants, ripping into his skin. His legs were soon sticky with blood, attracting the mosquitoes and other unidentifiable biting insects. Okay, so now typically when you give feedback, uh, you don't immediately go, well, great, good, uh, because it does become an empty thing to say because, you know, it becomes a habit. So typically what Shannon and I do and what we do in our wider writing group is we just kind of go into a thoughtful silence. And often we will read through the piece ourselves again while the writer sits and sweats and uh, nervously it very much is that. plays with fidget spinners. Yeah, it's, it's horrendous. It's a terrible time for them, but they do know that no one is going to rip them apart. So it's not going to be too bad. So what I'm going to do is something I would never do in a workshop for, for obvious reasons, but I know Shannon can take it and she's going to get to return the favor. I am going to read this piece through and I am going to add annotations, if you like, spoken annotations of what I'm thinking as I read it, how I put my feedback together. Uh, now, that means including lots of things I would not normally say to someone I was giving feedback to. So it's very important when you listen to this, that you understand this is my mental process and I'm a terrible person, but then I'm going <laughs> to pull it together and come up with something a little more constructive and useful. Okay, so here we go. Ripping the spine from the fish's body, the bear dug its sharp teeth into the flaccid flesh. So my immediate thought there is that there's maybe one too many adjectives, uh, and I would be inclined to drop sharp and just have the bear dug its teeth into the flaccid flesh. Uh, Siddharth squealed at the sight, and pulled his head, his hood down lower over his face, covering his wild orange hair. No worries there. Quite happy with that. Siddharth's been quickly established. Uh, and because he's been established against this thing of this bear tearing out a fish's spine, it's sort of like almost by a process of accretion has attached itself to Siddharth. He seems like a caveman or some brutal bestial creature. So I quite like that. So my initial thought is, well, I'm pretty happy with this so far. 
The gang of elk heard the odd sound from the strange shape traversing their green fields and scattered. Now, again, I hear way too many adjectives there. And when Shannon normally shares work with me, she's gone over it and gone, nah, nah, taking that one out, doing this one out. So because I know the context of what we're doing here, I would not point out specific adjectives. That is a little too confrontational. If there's one or two, it's not a big deal. But if there's a lot of them, and I, th- and I think there are, um, it doesn't help anyone to say this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. And also the time you spend explaining why you've picked one and not the other uh, is wasted time. And it creates a very out of proportion uh, feedback statement. So, I mean, going back to the first one, the reason why I think sharp should go is that, you know, bear's teeth are sharp. Whereas the flaccid fish, uh, flash, ugh, flaccid flesh of the fish, try to say that 10 times, um, <laughs> is, you know, f- fish flesh can be firm. In this case, it's, it's flaccid and I imagine rubbery. And I'm, I'm wondering why, what kind of fish that is. It's, it's, it seems like a meaningful detail. Can I uh, also you desperately want to tell me, do you? <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, now, this would not normally happen though, because this is all no. mental process. Yes. This is, um, I'm also writing the feedback that you give me on the piece so we can put it into the blog post. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So just continue. Uh, but it's also t- just identify your process and also for me as the writer, okay, this is what Gareth uh, has thought. But obviously I'll do a bigger section for when you give your overall feedback. Okay. Okay. Well, all right. Um I'm just thinking, will I be able to do this when it's my turn? Oh, no. But we'll worry about that when we get to it. So, okay. Siddhartha ran after them, attempting to re-enter the looming shadows of the mountain face, slowly receding with the rising sun. In the safety of shadow, he looked over his shoulder to see two figures following him. They were on the slopes of the mountain while he had escaped into the deep recesses of the valley, but they were catching him. So... Here, I think um, this this to me says first draft in that um, there is perhaps not enough detail, not enough sense of the chase. Uh, and again, I would consider the context. If Shannon had brought this into a workshop group and said, you know, I've labored over this, then I would be more mindful to point this out. I'm less certain. I'm going to see if this continues as I read down, but it's something I've noted now. Um, and there's a, there's a connection here. We have adjectives doing the work of description. So, and again, I, I really think this is very much a first draft thing when, when you, uh, are trying to write in a hurry and the exercise we did made us both prolific, fast writing writers. Um, I think people who write that way do tend to use too many adjectives because they're trying to get all their thoughts down and the flow of associations. And so it's a kind of a, um, a shorthand. Uh, the key is whether or not you have the critical thinking skills to then go back and say, this is just a shorthand. This does need developing. I need to be more mindful of pace, particularly in a, in a chase scene. Siddharth tugged at his hair until tears sprang to his eyes. Okay, so I'm noting that one. And I am noting it because I love it. Um, And it ties back to the bear. There's something bestial about this idea of him tugging at his hair until he cries. Uh, 
And I feel like these are important character notes. And the reason why I'm going to mention them is it, Shannon may have come to these very unconsciously. And in her further reading and looking at other things, she may not notice this rather wonderful element that she's started developing. So this is where positive feedback is constructive. Um, when you say you like something, it's not, I like something good for you, tick, let's move on. You're saying, I like it. Maybe there could be more of it. Or maybe this illuminates how something else isn't working so well. So these things are coins and there's a flip side to all, all coins. And so good feedback or positive feedback and constructive criticism are coin with two sides, always. Uh, and when you give feedback, it's worth thinking about the other side of the coin. So his grip tightened around the wooden staff he leaned heavily upon, exhausted by the climb, the pursuit, the secrets. Now, I'm slightly worried about the way that shifts from showing into telling, um, and then secrets that could change the world. I, I think that if, if Shannon was writing a complete story, not a vignette, I don't believe she would have written that. I'm, I'm quite sure of it. So I would basically add that to my idea that I'm giving her that there may be too many adjectives. The, des the descriptive passages, the imagery haven't been quite developed enough in terms of the rhythm of the chase. And I think that line would disappear. So I wouldn't point it out specifically. Now we get to the really interesting stuff. The tips of his toes sported ruptured blisters where the shoe fabric had worn apart from the plastic encasing. It was difficult to determine whether the brown gunk on them was dried blood caked over and over to form a thick layer or mud that had done the same. So I love that sentence. It's very visual. And that screams the, the chase. That's a much more interesting Representat representation of the chase to me. So yeah, bloody toes. I'm whacking down bloody toes is something I don't want to forget to talk about. Okay. But he had been in a hurry. Okay. So now that is telling, but that's effective telling to my mind. Um, it's a short, sharp sentence and it's an excuse and it's an excuse that is going to lead into a bigger excuse, a, a semi-confession. And so I like that a lot. And it had been dark. The hour 0237. Again, love it. What's that all about? 0237 seems like a very odd way to tell the time. This signals to me. We have this bestial man potentially in the future. What the heck is going on? And it had been dark. The hour 0237 when they had knocked upon the door of his family's home, seeing their faces through the gap in the window blinds. There's a spelling error there, but now I mention it because uh, I wouldn't mention it. Like, who cares at this point? Who cares? So, you know, when you're giving feedback, unless there's a persistent grammatical or, or, or spelling error or, you know, um, people are using American spelling and, you know, they, they probably will find it easy published in Australia with Australian spelling. It's not worth mentioning simple spelling errors at this point. That's a, a final pass sort of thing. So seeing their faces through the gap in the window blinds and the badges pinned to their lapels, the blood roared through his ears, eradicating all sense of self, leaving behind the bitter taste of blood in his mouth and the desire to survive. Exiting the back door, slipping on his daughter's sneakers, he left her and his wife behind without a second thought. So that's that's quite powerful, I think. There's, there's something uh, going on there, though. Why did he put on his daughter's shoes? Uh, why not his own? 
And I've been trying to get my head around that. I think there's one of two things. It could be that Shannon liked the idea of him having ill-fitting shoes and bloody toes. And so she's added that it's the daughter's shoes, but it doesn't make necessarily doesn't make a lot of sense. I wonder if he lives there though. I wonder if, for example, he is not a guest in the house with his wife and daughter and maybe his own shoes he left outside. So this is just my mind kind of going, how would I address this? Or how perhaps is Shannon planning to address it? I mean, who's to say? But I wonder if he lives at home or if he's not estranged. Um, now, this is a character who is already estranged, I think, in many ways in the story. He has become strange. He seems like a mountain man or a wizard with his staff. He's wearing little girl's shoes. He's got crazy hair. There's a lot going on with this guy. He's very interesting. But now this bit of the sentence, he left her and his wife behind without a second thought. Now that is a lie. That is a lie that the story is telling us because the story is telling us this. And this is Siddharth's point of view. So we are in third person limited in this story, which means that we know what Siddharth knows. We don't know more and potentially we can know less, but Siddharth is, is a, is a character that we can read. So he's thinking about the fact he left his wife and daughter behind without a second thought. And perhaps in the moment that is absolutely true, but he's thinking about them now. He's thinking about the fact that he didn't think about them, which, uh, which is, a, which is an interesting idea, I think. So one thing that immediately jumps into my head at that point is, should that be developed? Um, and I think it should a little bit, uh, at that point, And I'm assuming that the, description of the chase has been more developed. And so there's a lot more meat on that section. I am inclined to suggest that there should be some small additional development around this idea of leaving without a second thought, because he is having a second thought. Uh, and so I think that's worth addressing in some way. Despite the rising sun, the face of a diminished moon graced the brightening skies. Now, again, it feels to me like there's just too many adjectives in terms of the rhythm of the sentence. It's a lot more difficult to pick what word I would remove. But fortunately, I don't have to worry about that because I wouldn't actually specifically point this out to her so I can sneak past it. Siddharth scouted it, wiping the sweat from his brow as he trudged on entering into a thicket of forest and brambles. That wretched moon, he could escape it for 11 months of the year, but not 12. The Scorpio moon continued to hang in its heavenly domain, unperturbed by the struggles below. Now, I find all of that very fascinating. Like, why does the Scorpio moon work this way? Is it even on Earth? One starts to wonder. I mean, where is this thing set? What's going on here? Now, I'm pretty sure that there would be a definitive answer to why the Scorpio moon is different. Um, and I know that Shannon hasn't thought about it because I know she wrote this a few seconds after finding out what the, uh, the basic job description was. And I certainly haven't thought about it, but I know that there, that would be something that I would be interested in researching. So we get to this idea of research the Scorpio moon to, to provide a better sense of place.
because it's an interesting concept. Um, I don't love Heavenly Domain. Uh, that would not shock Shannon at all, I think. I think the, the three words, Heavenly Domain, Unperturbed, are not great choices. They, they, they have a certain uh, florid quality or a detachment that isn't reflected in the rest of the piece. So they jump out at me. Um, again, would I mention it? No, because Heavenly Domain and, and Unperturbed, this is all telling because a moon is not unperturbed, is it? Like moons don't get perturbed, nor do they manage to be unperturbed. They, they have no consciousness in that sense. So the whole idea of it being unperturbed is simply that it remains bright. Uh, and for me, it's, it's more effective to show that, I think. Um, and there are would be ways to show it. So it goes back to that original idea, um, of the showing and telling. Brambles caught at his pants, ripping into his skin. His legs were soon sticky with blood, attracting the mosquitoes and other unidentified, unidentifiable biting insects. Now, Shannon slipped on that word too. And my immediate thought is we don't need unidentifiable because by saying other biting insects, we're not identifying them. And so the, the word unidentifiable is, is telling and it's redundant telling. So I get to the end of the piece and what have I got? I've got this idea that the setting is fascinating to me. I, uh, but there are things that I think could be done about it. Like for example, researching the moon and having a greater concept of where this all is, whether or not this is actually explicitly detailed in the text is irrelevant, but it's very important for Shannon as the writer to understand these things. I would mention the daughter's shoes because it's a potential plot hole, but it could also be a potential uh, character development. For example, maybe uh, Siddharth is homeless. Perhaps he went and visited uh, his wife and child because he knew something was coming. These are all possibilities. Um, and I love the way that he has been characterized and how strange he is and how bestial. And the other point that I would have is that I feel that the adjectives are doing the work of the description. Now I know Shannon's writing really well, and this is not feedback I would normally give her because she wouldn't normally show me work that was doing this because she knows this. Um, but we were doing 10 minute writing exercises in a rush with many, many, many moving parts. So I think overall, so I would say, okay, Shannon, I'm giving you my official feedback now. All of that stuff that was going on in my head, she didn't get to hear any of this. So I would go, wow, okay, so this is a really fascinating piece. And I know that you had all these massive constraints that you were trying to work with it. And I think you've managed that tremendously well. This is all, this is all true, he says in his internal monologue. I think that um, in developing it further, I, I would like to see more descriptions of the chase. I think the chase is the key action within the scene and the way that many of the different um, elements of the scene are presented essentially fall within the framework or the focalization of the chase. So I'd like to see more of that. Um, there is a little bit too much telling as I'm sure you already realize. Uh, and that's to be expected because you are writing it fast, trying to get down as much as you could and telling is shorthand as we both know. So I would expect that as you develop the chase, 
any issues of telling that I noticed are going to fall away. So I, I'm not particularly worried about it, but I thought I'd point it out. I loved the characterization of Siddharth. He seems like a caveman, a bestial sort of creature. I like the way he's introduced against the savage, brutal imagery of the bear because the two things became connected in my mind. I, I loved his bloody toes and the, the curiosity around, you know, uh, why he, wore his daughter's shoes. I, I love the fact he tears at his hair till he cries. You know, this is, this is the, the actions of a madman. And I get this sense that, you know, maybe he's homeless or maybe he's some sort of cave creature. I'm certainly aware that this story is not set in uh, a sort of a contemporary, um, familiar setting to me. There's, there's an otherness to it that I find really fascinating. It appears to be sci-fi. I could be wrong about that, but I noticed the 0237 as the time, which seems very odd to me. It's an odd way to present time. Um, and also the way the moon is operating is very odd, which feels like there's been some sort of global catastrophe or they're not actually on earth or on the, they're on a simulation of earth or something like that. So I'd be interested to see how you develop that. And I did wonder whether the Scorpio moon, researching the Scorpio moon would give you some ideas around developing it and, you know, relative positions to the moon and, and how in different orbits or things like that, you could have an instance where the moon in November or I guess, yeah, in November would be, would behave strangely. So, so I would suggest that would be something to, to do some research on and see if that could develop more story ideas. Um, the mysterious men are obviously very, very interesting. And again, it feels like a science fiction sort of setting. I was a little thrown by the daughter's shoes. I loved it as an image. I thought it was a brilliant image. I wondered why he put on his daughter's shoes and not his own. Uh, you may have something in mind for that, but I think it's worth knowing that I, I noticed it. So, so if you didn't have anything in mind, it's possibly worth looking into. And then you have the line, he left her and his wife behind without a second thought because it's in third person limited. He's having that second thought now. Um, Oh, hello. My cat's joining the podcast. Um, and, uh, and so that would be worth developing potentially. Um, yes. Uh, I'm really distracted now. Can you get down please? Um, Oh, we just got a tail on the screen. <laughs> just got a tail on. The oh, there she is. Hello. Do you have any, Feedback for Shannon? No. All right. Sardine um, breath. Sardine breath. What you you heard that? Did you? Um, <laughs> yeah. So so basically, uh, she's actually sitting on my notes, which is not helping. Oh, um, yeah. So that second thought is occurring, and I think potentially that would be something I'd like to see develop slightly more because I'm trying to understand who this strange, bestial, slightly mad seeming character is why he was allowed in the house with his wife and child at 2.37, which I assume is in the morning, uh, why he ran off in his shoes. They, these things delight me, um, but they they also need to be framed clearly in your own mind as you move forward with it, I think, um, because they're, yeah, very intriguing. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm very curious to know how you're going to develop it from here on out. Thank you, Gareth. You're very welcome, Shannon. And so that's pretty much the interaction. If I had a question, and I don't, um, because there's not really enough here to make me have a question, uh, then I might ask it 
and then you know Shannon could answer it. Um, I guess just for the example of it, what did you have in mind when he takes his daughter's shoes? Was there anything specific, or was it more bouncing off the idea that um, that the shoes didn't fit him? Yeah, it was bouncing off the idea that his shoes didn't fit, but now I could see that it could be, oh, and he's escaping through the back door. So his shoes are at the front door, but his daughter's <sighs> shoes are there. But now that you've mentioned it, I'm like, oh, I could develop this a bit more because I know a lot of uh, young teenagers have those shoes that light up um, when they're walking. So oh, in yeah. terms of developing that chase scene, he's, you know, running through the forest. Every time he runs, the shoes light up and uh, – his pursuers could see him. I love that. I love that. So there is a slightly comic element to it, but it seems like a very dark comic element. Yeah. That's really Um, interesting. Yeah. And then in terms of the descriptions we were getting um, for developing Siddharth, I would read it out again. Uh, Siddharth Patterson is a gentleman from Edinburgh who can only speak when the moon is in Scorpio. He has crazy orange hair. He comes from a troubled family. He is hiding a terrible secret concerning the future. So I was trying to develop that uh, troubled family element as well within the house. But um, for me as the writer, it's interesting that your misreading of Siddharth as a bestial caveman has come because when I wrote him squealing at the bear, it was meant to be like a scared, ah, Ah, and getting scared of all uh, all the things that are happening, but he's still trying to run away. Yeah, that is interesting, and I I don't know whether you would take what my my reading of it and start going in that direction if that shaped your view of him, or whether you would rework potentially some of the bits to make his more domesticated uh, identity clearer or whether you'd actually just allow it to be an open question um which is also i mean there's 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 an advantage to all three approaches uh and so it's then you're really thinking about how your your organism holds together uh you know whether it stands upright or bounds along on four feet that sort of thing yeah okay so Hopefully that was reflective of the feedback I normally give you. It's it's quite interesting saying it all aloud because then you think, have I already said this? And it's a bit bit odd. But um, but yeah, I think uh, I guess we'll move on to me, shall we? The glowing sunrise swelled and stretched out in a sea of amber. No, thought Sinead, it's Edinburgh in November. She blinked regarding her husband's head of wiry orange hair. Being the first of the month, whatever thoughts he kept trapped beneath it could be revealed today. Because Siddharth had a terrible secret. He was illiterate, so he couldn't write it down, but that wasn't what it was. He could only speak for one month of the year when the moon was in Scorpio, but that wasn't his secret either. Last year he'd alluded to it through a mouthful of sheep guts, which made it sound like he had a seed cat. But Mr. Bibbles was in rude health. Ginger like Siddharth, he was similarly miserly with his words. Summoned by this thought, Mr. Bibbles jumped up onto the bed. He scaled Siddharth's side, kneading the blankets and gradually claw over paw, pulling them down. Siddharth shivered and yawned, his breath an alarming bouquet of dandelions, sardines and anus. Cat anus, in fact. He smacked his lips and sat upright, sending Bibbles sprawling to the floor. 
Good morning, he said for the first time in nearly a year. Sinead smiled thinly. Tasting his own breath, he slid out of bed, staggering into the ensuite and straining to squeeze the last of the toothpaste tube onto his brush. Twisting on the cold tap, he started scrubbing. Strange, he said, dribbling foam. Tastes like camel. Camel? Cat-amel, Siddharth repeated, somewhat rapidly. Cat laxative, thought Sinead. The man was brushing his teeth with the last of Bibble's cat laxative. Had he been a bit less sharp with her, she might have told him so. Mr. Bibbles, his breath an alarming bouquet of tobacco, bottom-shelf whiskey and sheep guts, meowed for breakfast. It was the first time in nearly a year that he'd been able to do so, and he looked forward to lapping up his breakfast slurry with his newly returned barbed tongue. If he played his cards right, he might even be able to get into the dregs of Sinead's milky porridge. She rarely ate it all. She ate like a bird, actually. Perhaps this was why her bones were so brittle, resulting in three separate breakages over the last year alone. The woman was practically held together with plaster casts. Their Scottish peahen, Penelope, meanwhile, was enjoying her first panicky flutter in nearly a year. Peahens aren't the most graceful flies at the best of times, but having her hollow bones back certainly helped. I'm just going to let you sit and sweat a little bit. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to read and do something similar for you. The glowing sunrise swelled and stretched out in a sea of ember. So beautiful opening sentence. I'm immediately in some place, in some setting. Yes, grab grab Mr. Bibbles, who I am sure your character is based on. Um, no thought, Sinead. It's Edinburgh in November. So we've got uh, a character come in. For this sentence, I'm thinking on the first reading, I didn't kind of understand if this was a negative thought or a good thought. No. Um, anyways, uh, she blinked regarding her husband's head of wiry orange hair. No issues there. Before the first of the, being the first of the month, whatever thoughts he kept trapped beneath it could be revealed today. Exciting. Okay, something's happening. Siddharth had a terrible secret. He was illiterate, so he couldn't write it down, but that wasn't what it was. He could also only speak for one month of the year. Sorry. <clears throat> when the moon in, was in Scorpio, but that wasn't his secret either. So um, I would probably think this, but I wouldn't say it, although I did say something similar to this yesterday. All these uh, sentences are really beautifully written and quite musical, uh, I think they do a really good job of setting the scene. Okay, something strange is happening here. There's a secret involved. And, again, you're alluding to it. Last year he'd alluded to it through a mouthful of sheep guts, which made it sound like he had a sick cat. Um, but Mr. Bibbles was in rude health. Ginger likes the dark. He was similarly miserly with his words. I suppose uh, later on with the thinking, so you've developed this really cool Setting at the start, there's a secret. We don't know. It's definitely not a sick cat, um, but it doesn't get further developed on this in the story, which is okay, fine, because we had, what, five, ten minutes to write this, and I'm not sure if you have an idea of what the secret is or if you are just uh, making it up for your vignette. But I put a pin in this because I'm like, okay, there's something strange happening here. I want to know the secret. Okay, so enter Mr. Bills. 
Summoned by this thought, Mr. Bibbles jumped up onto the bed. He scales the dark side, kneading the blankets, and gradually claw over claw, pulling them down. Great description here. There's no telling, just pure description. Very well done. Siddharth shivered and yawned, his breath an alarming bouquet of dandelion sardines and anus. Cat anus, in fact. So I just heard Luke laugh in the background. Um, I had to read this again because I was like, hang on a second. Humans don't have anus breath. Uh, They do have (laughs) sardine breath. Sometimes I have dandelion breath. And because it didn't make, I didn't realize until the second reading that you'd moved from Mr. Bibbles to Siddharth's character in that moment. Uh, So when you've mentioned he smacked his lips and sat upright, sending Mr. Bibbles sprawling to the floor. The first part of that sentence, I think you're again talking about Mr. Bibbles, but you're sending Bibbles to the ground. So that might need a bit of reworking so my brain can grok what's happening. Good morning, he said for the first time in nearly a year. That's cool. Um, Again, I don't know if this is Bibbles talking or Siddharth talking. Uh, Sinead smiled thinly, tasting his own breath. He slid out of bed, staggering into the ensuite and straining to squeeze the last of the toothpaste tube onto his brush. Twisting on the cold tap, he started scrubbing. Strange, he said, dribbling foam. Tastes like camel. Camel? Caramel, Siddharth repeated somewhat rapidly. Awesome scene. Uh, I, so I'm starting to get the sense that because you've got so many cool characters, they're all in the bed together, there's um, something that would need to develop is the clear distinction between entering which character, who's thinking, who's what. But I know you wrote this as very much a Virginia Woolf-style piece and she just jumped from thought to thought of the characters in her story. Cat laxative, thought Sinead. The man was brushing his teeth for the last of Bibble's cat laxative. Uh, you have amazing comedy that comes through your work. I'm just loving this, the cat anus and the laxative that he's brushing his teeth with. So I am thinking that and I would tell you in the feedback afterwards that you've done a good job of pacing that comedy aspect. (laughs) Mr. Bibbles, his breath an alarming bouquet of tobacco, bottom shelf whiskey and sheep guts meowed for breakfast. Awesome scene because you've got that contrast uh, between Siddharth's breath and Mr. Bibbles here. And again, it's really humorous. It was the first time in nearly a year that he'd been able to do so and he looked forward to lapping up his breakfast slurry with his newly returned barbed tongue. If he played his cards right, he might even be able to get into the dregs of Sinead's milky porridge. So I'm getting, this is probably the part where I definitely know something really weird has happened and I don't know if what it is, if people are jumping into each other's heads or they're swapping talents or something like that. But it's explained in the paragraph afterwards. Um, again, it's you've developed a really good sense of Sinead here and Mr. Bills through the characterization, through the descriptions. Uh, she rarely ate it all. She ate like a bird, actually. Possibly this was why her bones were so brittle, resulting in three separate breakages over the last year alone. So this is a bit of telling, but... It's necessary and it's done in a, a good way. You've entered in with these quite crisp sentences at the start and then it flows through. The woman was practically held together with plastic casts. Um, their Scottish peahen Penelope, meanwhile, was enjoying her first panicky flutter in nearly a year. 
Peahens aren't the most graceful flies at the best of times, but having a hollow bones back certainly helped. Awesome here. Um, so what point of view is this in, Gareth? That's, um, so it's, it's third person limited at Sinead's point of view. Um, yeah. I should say too, by the way, if anyone's watching this on YouTube, um, I should have been writing notes the entire time. Uh, and instead I was sitting here cuddling a cat, which was possibly on, you know, on reflection, slightly off putting for Shannon. So I, I apologize because oh, I should no. have been writing notes and actually, you know, taking this all down. And that, that's actually important because otherwise you find that when it's a nice thing that you're hearing, you might smile and nod when it's a less sort of complimentary thing, more constructive criticism. You try and look thoughtful and receptive and you're spending so much time doing that, that you're not necessarily paying as much attention as you ought to be. So just, just so that people know, I would normally be hurriedly writing notes, keeping my head at my pad so that in a sense, Shannon could feel like she was talking to a wall which uh, instead of um, a boy and his cat. So, yes. Yeah. Um, Okay. In terms of like the overall point of view, I mean, not my point of view, um, overall feedback, it's probably, and I don't do this with your work, um, Gareth, most of the time. It's the point of view that I'm having a bit of trouble with. Um, It's fantastically written in terms of the sentences, the descriptions, but uh, through this short piece, there's been multiple times throughout the reading that uh, I've been confused. Who am am I seeing this through? So that will probably definitely be developed in a second draft. And now I'm feeling really awkward because my feedback's a lot less detailed than yours. It can be that way, can't it? But let's say, for example, um, you know, uh, often in in a workshop, you don't have a designated first person. The person who has the most to say will often be like, oh, can I go first? Because they're just bursting with observations and reading that they desperately want to get out before they lose it all. And that's why they want to go first. And so nobody gets in the way of that. They go, yeah, you go on then, you... And so they blurt out everything they want to say. And that helps everyone else in the group because you have stuff you can work off. Uh, Another observation is uh, you've done a fantastic framing uh, technique. So in the latter part of the uh, story, you know, you've got Siddhar shivered and yawned, his breath and alarming bouquet of dandelion sardines and anus. Um, And then you've, put in more information than the framing for Mr. Bibbles, his breath and alarming bouquet of tobacco, bottom shelf, whiskey, sheep guts, meow for breakfast. Uh, you do this a lot in your writing and this particular instance here, I think it's been uh, beautifully done. Thank you. So, I mean, that's about the amount of response one would give, right? Thank you. Uh, and you kind of leave it at that. What I, what I will say um, uh, is that the amount of feedback you gave me was enough because what you actually highlighted as an issue was a big issue, the shifts between the characters not always being clear. And so I wouldn't say any of this to you. I'd just be like, yeah, she's got a point. I better get onto that and fix it. Because what, what I was trying to do in the story, eventually this became clear to me. It certainly didn't as I started. 
I was just trying to shoehorn all the bits from the settings from last time. Um, but I had the, the, uh, the idea of the cat's got your tongue. And so I took that tired old cliche and I tried to defamiliarize it. And so I thought, what would happen uh-huh. if Siddharth had Mr. Bibble's tongue for 11 months of the year? He wouldn't be able to talk. The tongue just wouldn't work right. A tiny little tongue. Um, and that Mr. Bibbles has his tongue. Uh, so they both, and so he's got this big human tongue stuck in his mouth. And so he can't lap up his food properly. It's just a mess. It's, it's an arrangement that suits no one. And on the 1st of November, they switch back. And so everything that was on the tongue is ends up in the other person's mouth. And that's why their breath is an alarming bouquet of various things you would not normally associate with humans and or cats. So... That was the first thing. And then basically the secret that I was trying to push towards um, is somewhat revealed with Sinead and the peahen in that Sinead and the peahen swap bones. So oh. Sinead actually has a peahen's bones. They're, they're sized for her, but they are hollow and therefore she's breaking bones all over the place. Um, whereas the poor peahen has these solid bones and can't fly anywhere and is waddling around like she's heavily pregnant going, I hate my life for 11 months of the year. And then she gets to have a panicky flutter in November. Uh, now I don't know where <laughs> I would be taking this, why these, uh, these things are occurring. Um, but essentially, uh, I, my, my feeling was that it begins with Siddharth. So it happens to him. And then Sinead catches it like a disease and it's going to spread yeah. across the world. And so what he needs to do is tell her that this is happening, but because he's yeah. useless and just like a terrible human being, I wanted Siddharth to be just horrendous. Um, he never quite gets around to it. He's too busy eating haggis and he's like, I'm going to tell her in a minute, get me another beer woman. And I wanted him <laughs> to be that kind of character. And she's like a long suffering. Why did I marry this for? At least Mr. Bibbles is cuddly sort of wife. Um, and that's what I had. So, so in the, in these, uh, but what I was trying to do was frame this reveal with enough humor to distract the reader from getting the reveal quickly. So, so basically telling jokes in an effort to distract the reader from what I'm actually doing in the story. Yeah. So now that you've told me that a second piece of feedback would be, you've done a great job of distracting me to the point. I don't know that the end part is a secret. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not a complete piece like your ones. I don't know. And this is something else that comes out in feedback. It's better to show complete pieces because it's very hard to work out how an organism works. If you're only given the leg, you're like, what does this thing do? It's all floppy. I don't know what this does. Um, so it is good to have that sense of context. So in getting that feedback from you, I would know I've shown you an incomplete piece of work, which means I can't accept the feedback exactly, but I also can't disregard it because there's no way of knowing either way. So that would be something I would note down as something to always keep in mind as I move forward. Am I actually falling into the trap that has potentially begun to be wound up or Mm. am I managing it well? That's very difficult to know. Yeah. How do you overcome that? So what do you mean when you say provide a complete piece within your workshop setting? 
Um, yeah, that, that can be very difficult, particularly if we're working on a large piece of work. Sometimes a little bit of a synopsis at the front end and a little bit of synopsis at the back end. And that's where this piece fits. That can help. It's better to have a complete piece. There's just no question of it. But if you can't do that, then you try and find a way to allow for a sense of it being a complete piece. So something like a synopsis at either end. Um, so would a complete scene or a complete chapter work as the next best option? And I, I would yeah. add to that um, when you've been workshopping together as a group, um, you know, that work on the back end has already been done. People are quite familiar with your work and your style, um, which is good reason to stick in that group and show up all the time. So they're getting re-familiarized with your work to help you uh, so they can give you the best feedback they possibly can. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Um, people do get forgetful though. So it is sometimes good to give them just a little bit of context. Um, but yeah, a chapter, a scene, and then a whole, a whole chapter you can assess on the level of a chapter. You can say, as a chapter, this worked for me. It may not work in the context of other chapters. If you feel that that's a concern, you should mention it. But there's no way for you to know. And there's actually no way for the writer to know. But it's it's just, if it doesn't sort of sit like a completed sto- short story and feel quite fine on its own level, it's worth noting it. Although it's, there's a very good chance it's just because it's not being seen in the context of the greater whole. But that doesn't mean you should just not say it because it, it could be a problem that's starting to rear its head. So, you know, it, it's fine to sort of say, look, I don't know if this is why I feel this, but I've, I, I would note that this doesn't feel like it's in proportion somehow. Um, because, yeah, I mean, if it was a first chapter and you read to the end of the first chapter and it felt out of proportion, uh, generally speaking, when you read a book and you get to the end of the first chapter, it won't feel that way. You won't think, oh, no, this feels wrong, like something's missing from it. Um, you know, it'll work as a chapter. So it can be very useful feedback, even if you're not sure of it. Yeah. And so, so in my piece, I mean, one thing is you really liked the framing. The framing I feel is very much playing out against the perspective of the point of view. So on the one hand, the thing you really like about the piece is complicated by the thing you think might be an issue about the piece. And so I know that I'm going to have to find a way to juggle this because they are very, they very much exist in proportion. Um, and by fixing one, I may make the other less effective. So there's no question in my mind that I would need to fix the point of view. That, that's not an issue, but I, I'm also mindful that I'm going to have to be very careful because this thing is an organism. You start cutting into one bit, you can affect another bit. Um, so it's, it's, but that would be something that I would be thinking very hard about moving forward. How do I do this effectively? Uh, and I don't have an answer to that, but <laughs> that would be my concern at, at the present moment. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for the feedback on my work. Thank and, you. um, I hope the audience got a lot out of that in terms of how to give and take a feedback on a first draft. And I think we've done a, a great job today and I think it's a wrap. Yeah, it feels like a wrap. I, um, 
I feel pretty good about it, all that. It's it's weird telling people exactly what you're thinking moment to moment. But um you know, I think it was a it's been an interesting podcast. It's great to have Dory, if if anyone saw Dory, that's Dory the cat. Um she's quite a Which star. Which I feel like here, a so. lot of your work was uh inspired by your muse is Dory. Oh gosh, yeah. Ori, Dory and Bertie, there are three cats and they're all there's a little bit of bibbles in in all of them, really. A little bit of all of them in bibbles. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's it's nice to think that, you know, she might now get a following, uh, might have her own Patreon page before too long and will be actually much more popular than we are. Uh, oh, and that's then we'll a rename- beautiful segue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought we should rename it to the pleasure of Dory. At Dory's <laughs> pleasure? I don't know. Yeah. It was a good segue, uh, but I've ruined it. So let's just backtrack. Yeah. Great segue. Uh, yeah, followings. Um, so if you like this video, like and subscribe on YouTube. We also have our website, thepleasureofthetext.com. Uh, we are dying to get feedback from you guys, and we'd love to see the work that you developed in our part one of this creative writing segment. With, this is part two, where it's called uh, Music Transcribe, no, Transcribing Music, uh, where we play a few scenes and then we insert Siddharth, our our main character into it and develop a piece of work. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and we're looking forward to hearing back from you guys. And we also have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook where you can reach out to us on those platforms wow. as well. That's amazing. You can tell you do all this. So I'm like, do we? That's fantastic. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, yeah. And if someone, you know, if you want to send in a piece of writing, you know, maybe 500 words max because, um, you know, why, why 500 word, words max? Uh, so this piece that we developed was 500 words or less um, because we've reached an hour of podcasting. So if it was a thousand word piece, it would have been a lot uh, longer for you guys to sit through um, and, yeah, have yeah, to listen to, that, to our that first That is the drafts. reason. 500 words, no more than that. If you want to send a piece in, we will give you feedback um, and, you know, uh, you might get something out of that. Um, certainly you will find that we are, we are very collaborative feedback givers. So yeah, if you're interested in doing that and you don't mind having a little bit of your writing read out on a podcast, uh, I think Shannon and I'd both be delighted to, to give one of our listeners feedback. Mm, Definitely. And, um, yeah, if you're writing, go out and find yourself a writing group as well and work on giving and taking feedback. It is really important, uh, tool in the toolkit of becoming a writer. Yeah. 100%. And I'm off to get my second copy for the day. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to go for my third. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See everyone. Ta-da. Bye.